Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We are so glad that you are joining us. We hope that you're having a very blessed day. Remember, you can catch us here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station, But if you do ever miss an episode, just check us out online. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. You can also find The Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. Just make sure that when you find us, you hit subscribe, and then you will never miss a future conversation. In today's episode, we're talking about the technocratic paradigm, gene editing, artificial intelligence, and all sorts of things that allow us to mold our bodies and our times at will. We discuss the principles needed for discerning the proper use of technology and what does it mean to have true dominion and authority over nature and what is a false dominion. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about peacetime states of emergency and the role of government. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we talk about how you could begin making a difference for your neighborhood or town this summer by connecting with your legislators. And listeners, if you ever have an idea for that bricklayer segment, or maybe it's just a question about faith and politics, make sure to send your ideas my way. Shoot me an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you can also find us on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're blessed to be joined on the line today all the way from an abbey, a Cistercian abbey outside of Vienna, Austria, by Pater Edmund Waldstein. He is a monk of the Cistercian Abbey of Stift Heiligenkreuz in outside Vienna and a lecturer in moral theology at the Abbey's Theological College and a parish priest of Gaden and Sulz. I hope I pronounced those correctly. Born in Italy and raised in the United States and Austria, Pater Edmund studied at Thomas Aquinas College in California, the Hoke School Benedict XVI in Heiligenkreuz, and the University of Vienna, where he was promoted Doctor of Theology in 2019. His research has focused on happiness, the common good, Catholic integralism, and theological readings of literary fiction. He edits the Josias blog and blogs at San Crucensis. We'll put those listings on our radio show page so people can connect with him there. Today we're speaking with him about his recent article in the very fine journal Plow, published by the Bruderhof community, called Lords of Nature. Pater Edmund, it's great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder program. Hello, it's, it's great to be on the program. What compelled you to write this essay in Plow called The Lords of Nature? Well, I think for a long time I've been concerned about a kind of false understanding of what it means for human beings to be lords of nature. Uh, and this seemed like an opportunity to look at it, see where it comes from, and uh, how we might overcome it. What are, what are some of the manifestations of this false lordship that you saw that compelled you to consider and write about this topic? Well, one example that struck me very forcefully is a strange one, an Italian surgeon who has this dream of doing head transplant. And he, he claims that he'll be able to do this soon. Maybe he won't, but it seems like this idea of transplanting a head of a human being, a living head, onto a different body shows a kind of wrong understanding of what a human being is in a very drastic way. You mentioned in your article things like CRISPR, transgender, transhumanism. These are all sort of similar phenomenons, it's, and it seems exactly. in which we can, we can like escape the body. The body is almost like a shell or a raw material that can be manipulated at will. 
Exactly. So CRISPR would be editing the human gene. There have already been attempts to edit the genes of human embryos to make them conform to a preconceived notion of what the parents want them to be like. And then, of course, transgenderism, transsexualism is a big theme in our time. People who would prefer to be a different sex than what they are and through hormones or through surgery try to change their bodies into a different sex. It's almost as though there's a different conception of the self than has historically been the case within Christendom, if you will, where there's a sense in Christian anthropology of a strong union between body and soul. It's almost as though we, we think of ourselves as spirits or souls or some sort of mind trapped in a vat. Um, how did we get to this point? It's a kind of long and complicated story. But I think one important figure where you can see this kind of idea emerging is the French philosopher René Descartes. Descartes, he sort of reconceived all of natural science and had a whole philosophical picture underlying his new conception of science. And part of his philosophical picture was that we as human beings basically are just our minds. We're the thinking things. And we are really distinct from our bodies. So I am one thing. My body is something else. I am this thinking thing, and the body is this quantitative, extended thing, as he says. And so he sees sort of this radical split between who we are and what our bodies are. How did Descartes come to this point? I mean, he was a faithful Catholic, and it seemed this seems so contrary to that hylomorphic union between body and soul. What, what led him to posit this? Descartes is famous for his method of universal doubt, right? He he wanted to come to a sure foundation of knowledge. And he thought that the philosophical sciences, as they were taught by the scholastic philosophers of his time, were uncertain. And so he wanted to start over and to doubt everything, including the evidence of his own senses, uh, and to see if there was anything that he could not doubt. And of course, famously, the one thing that he found himself unable to doubt was his own existence, because since he thought he must exist as the, the one thinking. And this was kind of the foundation of his whole philosophy. And part of it, this, too, was a kind of a practical intention. That is, this wasn't just a theoretical exercise for Descartes. He thought that, in fact, that the sciences of his time were too theoretical. They were just interested in knowing about things for the sake of knowing about them. But he thought that human knowledge should be useful. That is, it should give us power over nature, enable us to better our lives by developing technologies and so on. This idea of the, the thinking thing as one thing, and then this sort of the material world, including the human body, as just an ended thing that we have access to through measurement, he found that a fruitful way of thinking about nature in order to control it in order to develop a technologically useful form of science. So far from being the uh, domain of academic philosophers or college undergraduates, ideas do have consequences, and we're very much living with the effects of Descartes' dualism and uh, technocratic worldview today. But in your article at Lords of Nature, you talk about a reaction to that called romanticism that we're still very much living with as well. What's, what's going on with that? Yes, I think that's very important. The, the history of the development of, of modern culture 
is not a kind of linear development where one thing just builds on another, but it's a history with a lot of conflict. What I argue is it's a conflict within a kind of overarching unity, so that the conflicts tend on reinforcing <laughs> what's worst about this, what's worst about this sort of dualistic understanding of uh, the human person. So the reaction against Descartes, I call romanticism. Romanticism is really one strand among many, but it's kind of convenient to think of it all as romanticism. If you think of the German poets in the 19th century, or the a little bit later, the Polish poets, the great romantic poets, you can see a very strong rejection of what they see as an overly rationalistic approach to reality and life that was common among the Enlightenment philosophers, beginning already with Descartes, but carried on in people like Voltaire and Locke and so on. But uh, what the Romantics want is an authentic way of living. And they try to find this in nature, but nature understood in a more subjective way, not nature understood as an objective order, the way the scholastics, or even before them, the ancient Greeks would have understood nature, at least Aristotle and the, the greatest of the ancient Greeks. But nature now understood as something very subjective, as kind of that to which I have access to the feelings of my heart and so on, the emotional life. So this is why the romantics are often poets, because poetry is a great way of capturing sort of individual feelings and uh, the sort of a subjective sense of nature as a, a kind of dynamic inner principle, not as an objective order. So you couldn't have said it better, I think, Pater Edmund, is that we're living and swimming in an ambient culture in which we conceive of ourselves as mind or spirit or soul. That's our true selves, and we need to be true to ourselves like Walt Whitman, seeking authenticity, but rooting truth and reality in our own subjective sense of self. And boy, that's that's cer certainly the ambient culture, at least here in the United States, I think probably in the Western world as well, and that's having a whole host of consequences. You've mentioned just a few with the desire to transcend our bodily limitations through things like head transplants, transhumanism, uh, gene editing through CRISPR. So these are ideas that have significant consequences. Yes. Say a little bit about how the Christian worldview or the faith can be an antidote. How do we speak to these deep existential longings and, and sort of philosophical errors that we're swimming in? How do we push back on that and, and live a truly authentic, integrated self uh, in our culture today? Yeah, I think the, the deep truth that the Christian tradition shows us, and also the, the Greek philosophical tradition that the Christian tradition has, has sort of integrated into itself, is that there's an objective order of goodness, and the, the longings of our heart, they're not arbitrary. That is, it's not as though we have these longings and then they, they happen to fasten on some object and then we can only be happy if we get that object. But really, our hearts are built by our Creator for what's really good for us. And part of, of growing as a human being and, and becoming more virtuous and more happy is discovering what we're made for. And feeling the attraction of what's truly good, what's truly beautiful, training our hearts to find what they were made to find. And that means living in accordance with the natural tendencies that the Creator has 
inscribed into us as natural beings. So, for example, we are created man and woman, male and female, and there's a deep wisdom of the creator in that, and we become more happy and more free when we live in accordance with that, rather than because of some difficulty or other or some emotional disturbance, thinking that we will be happier if we deny that we were created as we were created and try to change ourselves into something else. We're speaking with Pater Edmund Waldstein. He is a monk of Stift Heiligenkreis Abbey outside of Vienna. He runs the Josias website and uh, is a prolific author and writer on uh, Catholic moral theology, Catholic political philosophy. And we're speaking with him today because he wrote a very fine piece in Plow called The Lords of Nature. Pater Edmund, what role has technology played in reinforcing some of these the, this sense of our subjective self? It's almost like we're lost in technology and lost in our own thoughts, and um, it's hard for us to escape and see reality. What role do you think technology is playing in all this? Yes, I think it has a very important role. You know, Pope Francis, I think you already mentioned, he talks about the technocratic paradigm in, in the encyclical Laudato Si. Um, and I think that is a very good way of, of putting it. The new philosophy that Descartes and others invented I think the main reason why it has such a hold on our culture is because technology seems to confirm it. That is, you had this tremendous technological development from the time of the scientific revolution with Descartes and and others, Galileo, Newton, and so on, up until our own time. I mean, this, this technological development has continued. And we have achieved power over natural things that previous generations didn't have. We have antibiotics and uh, anesthetics and cars and airplanes and all these things that previous generations didn't have. And this tremendous power gives a great plausibility to the sort of the, the worldview that was underneath the, the scientific revolution, which I think you could it would be conceivable to to separate them out. That is, there's nothing inevitably Cartesian about technology, but in fact, the worldview underlying the technological developments of the past three centuries has been Cartesian. And so the use of these technologies and sort of the prestige of science that comes from its technological achievements has tended to reinforce this kind of Cartesian view of the world. Certainly the ancients had technologies, the medievals built the great cathedrals, so technology and uh, Baconian Cartesianism, if you will, don't necessarily go hand in hand. My own order, the Cistercian order, we made significant technological advances in the Middle Ages uh, in the area of water wheels and uh, irrigation of fields and so on. You look at the early Cistercians, there was a lot of technological advancement, but it was with a different understanding of the relation of man to nature. Indeed, the only religious order with its own architecture. So a wonderful contribution yes. by the Cistercians. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a Cistercian oblate, so I'm putting in a plug for, oh, my, for my confreres. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what does Pope Francis have to tell us and teach us in Laudato Si about this false dominion or this idea that we're lords of nature? How can we right the ship? And what does Pope Francis have to say to guide us in Laudato Si? Well, I think one of the the main points that Pope Francis makes in Laudato Si, and the reason why he uses that prayer of St. Francis of Assisi 
as the opening of the encyclical, Laudato Sio Mi Signore, is that we are creatures among creatures. So there is, among the visible creatures on this earth, obviously, human beings have a special place because we're made in the image of God, and we're able to know and love God explicitly in a way in which the other creatures on the world aren't, the other visible creatures. Nevertheless, we are creatures. We're not God. And so there is a kind of fraternity between us and other creatures. So St. Francis calls all of the other visible creatures brother and sister, you know, brother, son, sister, moon, and so on. And this should give us a certain humility in our relation to the natural world and a willingness to try to work with the purposes of the Creator. So try not to just simply impose our own scheme of purposes on the natural world and, and force it to serve uh, our arbitrarily chosen purposes, but to sort of work with the grain of the natural world in accordance with the natures that God has created. Interestingly, one would say that people involved in agriculture or farming seem to be the most immune from this technocratic paradigm or this false dualism, uh, this body-soul dualism, perhaps because they live the natural law, uh, in their day-to-day life. They see the rhythms of life. They see the need to cooperate with nature to, to have it yield fruit and not to try to be a master of it. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, we do see in agriculture the a kind of industrialization as well in some parts of the world, especially with um, the use of lots of pesticides and, and uh, artificial means of stimulating crops and so on, where you kind of, to some extent, ignore natural constraints or try to overcome them as much as possible. And often in ways end up impoverishing the soil and uh, the, even the, the quality of the food that they're producing and so on. But I think that in general it's true that, that involvement in agriculture does, is able to give you the kind of humility and, and knowledge of your dependence on the natural world that would be necessary. Yeah, we have to have a proper stewardship, not just of our bodies, but of the soil as well. Perhaps maybe it might be better said, we just need to get out in nature a little bit more to experience that creatureliness, to rediscover that sense of awe and wonder at the beauty of things and our need to be good stewards of that, rather than uh, being trapped on our phones and in our offices and in our homes on computers all day. Yeah, yeah, I think there's something to that. There's Human beings are... Because, because we're both bodily and spiritual creatures, there, there's a tremendous variety possible in human life that's maybe less possible in the lives of other creatures who have a set habitat and can't really flourish at all outside of it. But if there's, a, there's a wide variety of habitats as it were, in which human beings can flourish. You know, they can flourish in, in Middle Eastern cities and in villages and Lapland and so on. Uh, so <laughs> there is this variety to human life, but but nevertheless, I think you're right. There, it is necessary to keep a connection to the natural world for human beings, and there's a danger in being so separated from it and living in an entirely artificial world where everything that you see is a product of human technology and where most of your interaction with other beings takes place, as, uh, takes place over an electronic screen and so on. I think there's a great danger in there in making us forget what we are and that we are part of nature. 
Padre Edmund, I have one more question for you, given your interest in literature and theological reflections upon it. In what way can uh, writers such as Tolkien or Wendell Berry or others like them uh, help us recover an authentic vision of stewardship of an integrated human life, of a proper lordship and dominion over nature? Um, And what, what role can good literature play, and do you have any recommendations in that regard? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, as I mentioned, the Romantics tended to be poets, and they really exploited the power of literature, and partly for a good purpose, that is, much of what the Romantics were reacting against was bad, and they were right to criticize kind of the the excesses of uh, Enlightenment rationalism in their poetry, but also they also used it for a bad purpose, that is, the kind of subjectivism of romanticism and its glorification of sort of incommunicable individual feeling as sort of the, the guide of life had a, a terribly destructive effect on our culture and on and has had a destructive effect on many human lives. So so literature is very powerful both for good and for ill. And I think the authors whom you mentioned, Tolkien and Wendell Berry are, are both excellent examples of a literature that recalls us to a truer understanding of ourselves and our relation to nature. I think Tolkien is is particularly interesting. His love of trees uh, is so strong in all of his writings. And the, the kind of wonder and admiration of nature in those trees, nature is, is truly a, a goal-oriented principle that has been put into these trees by their creator. Uh, is is very beautiful and profound. Sounds like the building blocks of a green tomism, but that's a subject for another day. <laughs> We've been blessed uh, to be on the phone today with Pater Edmund Waldstein from the uh, monk of the Abbey of Heiligenkreuz outside of Vienna. He blogs at the Josias uh, website. He also has a very fine article in Plow called Lords of Nature, which you can find online. Pater Edmund, where else can people go to find your good work? Well, my monastery uh, is also famous for Gregorian chant, which we've cultivated since our foundation in the year 1133. And if you Google or, or put into any Spotify or whatever music streaming program you use, chant music for paradise, then you can listen to some of our chants. Outstanding. Wonderful. Pater Edmund Waldstein, thanks for joining the Bridge Builder program today. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Get what's in this week's mailbag. So Minnesota's governor and really many governors across the country have maintained their peacetime emergencies for the past year amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And the governor's emergency powers and some of those mandates have really become a sticking point of division along partisan lines raising questions of when should emergency powers be ended? Do they go too far? Should they be limited? Should the legislature have more to say during an emergency? And although the church doesn't take a stance on these particular questions, Jason, could you help us think it through? Maybe what are some of the principles that we should be taking into account 
when we start to think through such questions that aren't really so clear cut? So the original Emergency Powers Act was enacted in the 1950s when there was a possibility of nuclear war that legislators couldn't get to the Capitol on time or it would be inconvenient or impossible for them to make decisions. So they vested the governor with extraordinary powers when an emergency was declared. And then that law has been modified subsequently in 1979, 2002, and 2005. The question that's being debated is whether or not a pandemic such as what we've been experiencing, falls within the scope of the emergency powers. I think most people do believe it does, as the legislature took what's called an all-hazards approach to giving the governor emergency powers. But the situation is vastly different than it was in 1951. We have the Eisenhower Interstate Freeway System. We have Zoom. We have the Internet. We've been conducting legislative meetings online. So is it the case that there's a necessity for the governor to act alone when the legislature can be made available and is available? So in each one of these questions, it's always a question of prudence, right? When do you apply the relevant principles and the relevant law to the specific facts at hand? And that's a decision functionally that's up to the legislature, at least in the way that powers are constructed. The legislature can vote to end the emergency powers, which they've voted on, I think, now 12 times since the emergency was originally declared in March 2020. And because of partisan division in our legislature, have been unable to end those emergency powers. So it's a question of prudence. How sh- how far do those powers extend? When the- has the governor overextended his powers? And at the same time, when is the emergency really still an emergency and when is it not? Again, the way our law is structured, these are a question for the legislature. There is a reasonable debate going on at the Capitol, though, whether or not the legislature should vote to continue those powers or should vote to end them. Right now, they have to vote to end them. The state peacetime emergency automatically continues as long as the governor extends his emergency powers. But as we're experiencing, if we have partisan divisions in the legislature, then this emergency could go on indefinitely if one body of the House agrees with the governor is of the same party, which is the case here. So should it be changed to make it that the legislature has to extend the power and the power automatically expires after 30 days? That's the debate that's going on at the Capitol. I think after the pandemic finally settles down fully, there'll be some time for reflection as to whether or not the lawmakers want to change those laws or make any tweaks based on the experience we've had here in Minnesota. Thanks, Jason. And before we wrap up this week's episode, we want to leave listeners with the practical ways that they can start building the bridge between faith and public life. What do you have for this week's bricklayer segment? Well, the summer is in full swing. The pandemic has subsided and people are getting out. They're having festivals. They're getting together again. And so are our lawmakers. They want to be a part of community celebrations. So a number of things that you can do is to get out there at those town halls that legislators are starting to put on. They're also showing up at town festivals, 4th of July parades, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a great opportunity to interact with your legislators, especially for many who have been isolated for quite a long time or unavailable in person. A great opportunity to bring issues of concern that you have, issues of concern to the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And you can go to our build tracker at mncatholic.org to talk about those key questions, the legalization of marijuana, the legalization of assisted suicide, creating a sufficient social safety net. Uh, All these are really big questions that we need uh, Catholic voices speaking about with our elected officials. So sign up for your legislator's email. You can locate your legislator, again, at our website, mncatholic.org. Get their emails, and then when they're out and about, they'll let you know on their website or through their email system, and then show up and voice your issues of concern. A great way to start interacting, again, with your legislators in person in the district in a way that's really constructive this summer. 
That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you always know when a new episode comes out. The Bridge Builder Podcast is now an award-winning podcast, having received second place in the Best Overall Podcast category by a church organization. So we're honored the Catholic Media Association uh, awarded us this way, recognized our good work, and it's because of listeners like you that we've helped improve the show and make it more informative and user-friendly. So we think you should share this with others, mncatholic.org slash podcast for our full podcast library. But if you're on the podcast app, make sure to send that to friends and neighbors. You can connect with us via our email show at mncatholic.org if you've got a question for our mailbag segment or anything else that you are want to inquire about related to the podcast. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.